good morning and welcome to the Men's Leadership Network. Uh, welcome to the satellite campuses watching at Bricks and Cool Springs and Flavor Catering downtown Nashville. Welcome to everybody here in Nashville or in, at the Franklin campus. Um, just a reminder before we get going here, you're going to have some options to ask some questions. Uh, if you want to tweet those in, the Twitter handle is at leadership underscore net or the email is questions at mensleadershipnetwork.com. Also, if you've got um, some cards on your table with the upcoming schedule of uh, speakers, as well as if you're new and want to fill out a guest card to give us your contact information, that'd be fantastic. Uh, this morning, it's my pleasure to introduce Mike Hamilton. Many of you know Mike from his time as athletic director at the University of Tennessee. He was there for eight years. Uh, but was at the university for 20 years. Prior to Tennessee, he was at Wake Forest and Clemson University. He is currently the executive director of Show Hope, an organization that focuses on restoring the hope of family to orphans around the world. And he's also founded and works with Winfred Henry Partners, focusing on nonprofit consulting and executive coaching. Before joining Show Hope, Mike served two terms on Show Hope's board of directors, while also working as Bloodwater Missions President of Engagement. Uh, I referenced his time at Tennessee. At Tennessee, he was uh, uh, instrumental in growing revenue uh, tenfold to $45 million annually and uh, a total of over $500 million in the athletic department. In addition, $275 million in new or renovated facilities were constructed during his tenure. Mike's been named National Fundraiser of the Year in College Athletics. That was in 1998. That was a good year for Tennessee. Has been named Business Tennessee. Uh, named by Business Tennessee as a member of the Power 100 and has been awarded numerous honors for his work with youth and children. Mike and his wife Beth now live here in Nashville with five children, three of whom were adopted from Ethiopia. Mike is a leader, a teacher, and a willing heart that champions the work of Christ. Please join me in welcoming Mike Hamilton. Awesome, yeah. Wow, Mike, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be with you. Uh, hey, tell us a little bit about your family and your career. And yeah, yeah. so uh, my wife and I are both from Brevard, North Carolina, which is just over the mountains. And we, um, we have five adopted children. Mm -hmm. uh, the intro mentioned three were adopted from Ethiopia, but all of our kids uh, are adopted. And uh, three years apart, from age 20 down to age seven. And those first uh, two adoptions, would, I would say that was about us creating our family. And then we felt a call in 2007, 2008 to the orphan crisis and didn't really know what that looked like. Um, but it ended up uh, with us adopting three children from Ethiopia. So on the personal side, I've now been married uh, be 28 years this summer. Um, my wife is involved in, she's a therapist and counselor for women mm -hmm. and women's issues. And it's a great marriage. And we love being in Nashville. Wow. Career-wise, you know, started out... Uh, uh, in banking, actually, wow. and then went back to get an MBA and worked for the Clemson Athletic Department, and that led to a career, a 26-year career in college athletics before then shifting to nonprofit work. Yeah. Well, tell us about your time. I mean, a lot of, a lot of us know you from uh, Tennessee, so tell us about your time as athletic director there. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when, when you go to a school in college athletics, many times it's a, it's, a, it's a job where you're transitioning to other schools quickly. I was blessed to be in one place for as long as I was, mm -hmm. and so the chance to follow Doug Dickey in 2003 was an unbelievable honor, and particularly at a place like the University of Tennessee. And, and so uh, those are hard jobs, but they're fun jobs. They're, they're transformative jobs, both personally and then what you get to do with the student-athletes that you're able to interact with. And, 
and um, we had a lot of success and then we had some failures and I think you learn from both of those equally such or you should anyway and and uh, the chance to be a part of championships and excitement and hoisting trophies and then the, then the hard of, of having to be involved in some difficult decisions that that ultimately led me to decide that it was time to walk away and I don't uh, look back at any of that with anything other than just um, real uh, honor of, of being able to be involved there mm -hmm. and the chance to, to be a part of particularly student athletes lives and I felt like I grew, grew so much during that time and so many life lessons that I'll never ever uh, forget. Mm. Well, talk about that. What was your favorite part of that job? But also, tell us some of the challenges. I mean, you know, because yeah. a lot of times you see it, it's all glamorous. And, you yeah. Know, but. You know, sometimes I think you're, you're best able to assess the true meaning of something in retrospect. Mm. And I've done a lot of that kind of work personally over the last four or five years. And the three things that really kept coming back to me, keep coming back to me, are the, that things that have really mattered in my life. And these are all present in college athletics, and now I see them also in other things that I do. One is it matters to me to be a part of something that's, that um, is about transformational lives, in particular young people. So in college athletics, to see young people who come into school, many of them first-generation college attendees, uh, to see them as young teenagers coming in, in some ways scrawny and, and that kind of thing, but, but yet when they leave, to, to leave as grown men and grown women and ready for the, the world and, and to be able to bring about generational change in a lot of families. So transformational lives uh, clearly was one thing that, that I reflect back on as being really important during that time. Second, uh, for me it really gave me a, a sense of what does, what does deep relationship mean? And part of that comes out of transformation, obviously, but uh, as I look back now, having you know, interaction with um, men and women who came through our program now 20, 25 years ago, and seeing them grow and, and mature in their jobs and having families and, and those relationships and what they matter to me. And I realized maybe at the time it was about the, I was doing a job, but over time you see what, where the relationship really comes into play. So deep relationships were part of it. And then thirdly, um, I'm a person that I've discovered that I like challenge and mm -hmm. particularly things that people say can't be done. And the one that I go to most frequently probably is uh, becoming AD in 2003 and in a time where we were, we had had five basketball coaches in 15 years and many people thought, well, that's just who we are in basketball. I really felt like, mm -hmm. we felt like that we had the resources and the, the fan base to, to perhaps achieve more than that. And, and so to see transformation in basketball, what ultimately led to the most successful nine-year run in Tennessee basketball history, was something that was very gratifying. But, and now I see that in, in the work that I do on the, in the nonprofit sector, transformational lives, relationships that matter, and doing things that people say, man, can you really accomplish that? Um, I, the work now is in orphan care, but also I've, I've done some work with water and medical issues in Africa, and I saw those three things present in all the work. Wow. I love that about your heart because, right, it's not just doing a job. It's you're investing in people and you're growing people. And as disciples, that's, that's our call, you know, as followers of Christ. And I appreciate that. And tell us, talk about how you had some strong personalities when you were at the University of Tennessee. Right. So yeah. uh, whether it was Lane Kiffin or Bruce Pearl or these different uh, people, how do you interact with people who have these strong personalities? Yeah, well, so I think the, the main thing I would encourage folks to realize and maybe at some level we do, 
It's that it's really about a one-on-one relationship and understanding who someone is and also understanding that every single one of those people uh, goes about their life in their own unique way. And while they may have fame or notoriety, and many times it's positional leadership. It's because they've achieved being a head coach at an institution like the University of Tennessee or they're head of a certain corporation or whatever. And so uh, it, was a one, it was really just like this. It's mm-hmm. conversation regularly. It's, it's understanding where somebody's vulnerable, trying to help them in those places, encourage them where they need to be encouraged, an assessment of who they are as individuals, and, and particularly in a leadership role, trying to find out where you can serve best the, the people that you're working with to allow them to achieve most what they're trying to accomplish, in my case, on behalf of an institution. You know, I think that the other thing, too, is much of this image is created as a media right in mm-hmm. some ways. That's not to disparage anybody in the media. It's, it's, it's what we're about in our society today, unfortunately, in many ways. Uh, there is this obsession with athletics in America. And uh, if anybody questions that, I would love to have a longer conversation. <laughs> but I think that because of that, um, in some ways, many of the men and women that come through athletics, both college and professional, are built up into a place that, candidly, I don't know that they can really, they can really do what everybody thinks they can do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's, that's the society we're living in. And so I think that my role in relationship with whether it was Coach Fulmer or Coach Summit or, mm-hmm. or Bruce or Lane or whomever, it was about making sure that I walked alongside them to walk with them but also to provide guidance where needed to make sure that we were accomplishing institutional goals and they were given the resources to be successful on behalf of the student athletes. There's this juxtaposition in college athletics, right? Mm -hmm. Between this entertainment venue, the sports entertainment venue that we're operating that has brought about billions of dollars in television Mm -hmm. revenue, but at the same time, when you peel that back, there still is the concept of the amateur athletic model. Now, some people want to question that, right? Because they see the money in football and basketball. But if you go onto a college campus and you spend time with the student athletes, not only in football and basketball, but in tennis and golf and so on and so forth, you see that there is a, it's a different metric when you're talking about the, who those guys and ladies are on campus and how they're, how they're being changed by the collegiate athletic model. And so there's this balance of this educational experience and this sports entertainment experience, and it makes for a very difficult marriage some days. Yeah. I love the way you said that just a while ago about serving them, you know, and, and that comes back because we're talking about vulnerability and leadership uh, to understand that those coaches have a huge impact on these kids, right? And, and your role, and it sounds like this is what you've done in every place you've been, but to empower others to do work for, you know, building other up, people up and talk about transformational leadership that's that conduit of us. It's not always about us. It's about us empowering others to do that. Yeah, amen. And I think that probably the lesson I had to learn early on in the athletic director role was I was trying to be everything to everyone and to have my influence in in the different places that we served in the program. And I came to a realization very quick that that was a recipe ultimately for leadership failure because, Mm -hmm. you know, you want to be able to hire people who can do the job and do it well and effectively and lead well or you don't have the right people in the job. And so there has to be a level of trust there. There has to be a level of vulnerability, if we want to use that term there, mm-hmm. um, to, to allow people to accomplish what you've hired them to do. It is critical in a position of leadership that you find the right people that espouse the right values and, un- and understand the core values of whatever institution we're talking about, that they are going to carry those forward, in our case, with student athletes, to help them have the proper learning experience 
again, the, the intercollegiate model in the United States of transforming lives from the time somebody comes in as a 17-year-old to when they leave when they're 22 or 23. Mm. Can you recognize that in somebody? I mean, how long does it take you to recognize whether the person's a good fit, whether they're espousing the values of the institution or the university or whatever organization you're serving or in our workplaces? Can you, can you identify that, or what are some keys to identifying that? Yeah, so I think it's an inexact science, mm -hmm. and I would think that I could say that, that there, I made some hires that were very effective, and I made some hires that weren't as effective. And it's not because you're going out trying to make an, an ineffective hire. It's just yeah. you're looking for certain things, and you think you see those in individuals, and then all of a sudden, maybe it doesn't play out the way you exactly thought it was going to play out when you made the hire. And in some cases, in our uh, role that I was in, in in athletics, you're making a decision on someone when you're actually only spending about an hour and a half of face-to-face -face time with them, and then you're hopefully doing research around that. Well, so many times the research you're doing around that are people trying to assist their friends and help their friends get good jobs, right? <laughs> so um, the thing that I like to do is I like to talk to folks about who are your mentors, uh, what does good look like, uh, who have you followed, who, who have you, um, who do you, um, you know, try to you know, espouse to be like, those mm. kind of things. But then what are the things that matter? You know, what, are, what are your personal core values? What do you want to do in this role that you're able to, you're possibly getting the opportunity to serve in in the short term? And, uh, and those things become critical. You know, what is somebody really about? The, the difficulty is trying to peel that away and find out what is good words uh, in an interview setting versus what it, you know, what's real. Mm -hmm. And um, there's an element of trust that has to come into play there, right? And then sometimes you get in the actual role with someone and you begin to see that maybe what you thought you saw is not exactly what you now see. So then that's where leadership comes into play of trying to assess that I, I misjudge this person or do I now have to say, okay, these are the things that I heard you say you were about. Are we off calibration here and how can I get you back on calibration? And what, what are the ways that we can serve each other to allow you to grow to what you say you want to accomplish and do the best for those who you're working with? Mm, that, that's a great insight because it's not just at the interview time and all of us in our different uh, areas of work uh, and ministry. You know, there, there's times that people come and join the team, right? But, but then it's later on too. Leadership doesn't stop just hiring that person. Leadership goes on of, of building them up and encouraging them and helping them stay calibrated to the organization and the mission. Well, the things you learn, you know, and there, are some, there are some critical factors that, that have to be in place. One is, you know, someone has to be a person of integrity mm -hmm. and be able to speak truth and to be able to receive truth at the same There's two things there, be able to speak truth and be able to receive truth. Mm -hmm. And then I think that um, another thing is, is um, you have to have someone who has a willingness to learn, a willingness to listen, willingness to ask good questions, um, a willingness to receive proper feedback, those kinds of things, and those become critical factors in the success of, of an individual. You know, we're, we're all about, we're all changing, right? Mm -hmm. And so are you going to grow as a leader when you're in the role? And then whether it's 360 leadership and say both from the, the bottom up and the top down, how are you helping the person grow in their, in their capacity to become the best leader they can be? And that's the challenge we all have as leaders. Yeah. I, I, just, I will say this. I also think you can't discount cultural fit. I think that um, you know what may work here at Rolling Hills may mm -hmm. not work at another church in town, obviously, or, and what may work Super. at a nonprofit, a ministry like Show Hope may not work at, in my case, I was at Bloodwater before. Mm -hmm. And so you have to find out what's the fit for your particular institution. Not so much so that you're uh, locked into uh, that being the only way to do the work, 
but how does it fit your culture at, at a particular institution? Wow, that's good. That's really good. But talk about, because you were very successful at UT, and talk about that transition from athletics, I mean, into nonprofit ministry. I mean, that, that's a, that's, when you're doing something really well, and I'm sure there were a ton of schools that were calling you and saying, hey, we'd love for you to come, uh, and we, we got together, you were talking about Oklahoma and different right. places, but talk about how did, how did God stir in your heart to move from athletics to something like nonprofit ministry? You know, I don't think I, I entered my late 40s with the idea that I was going to have some Bob Buford halftime, you know, <laughs> success and significance moment. But um, again, reflecting back, I think God put, put my story at a place in, the, in the, the, the early 2010s in a place where it was, he was clearly preparing me for something else. And I'll never forget, I had a chance to go to another major institution in the summer of 2010 as an athletic director, and I was just really loyal to UT, and I said, I'm not, I'm not interested in going, and, and I, the next week was when I found out that our basketball coach had lied to the NCAA, and at that moment, I went home and I told my wife, I said, you know, our time is here, our time here is over, it's now a matter of how this is going to play out over the next weeks or months, and at the same time, on a parallel track, we were going through our adoptions of our children from Ethiopia. And our youngest daughter, her name is Kalu. This, her name was given to her by her birth mother. And in an airport in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and sitting and talking to an elderly lady, what I found out was that Kalu's name meant get the word out. And um, it literally means get his word out. So we began to ask the question about how we could step into this equation of having had a platform at UT, having a platform at UT at the time, how could we begin to get the word out about um, pediatric HIV, about uh, the orphan crisis and many other issues. And that led to us doing a fundraiser of, to bring about attention to Africa in Knoxville in 2010. I really then began to feel the call to go in a different way, not just to, to you know, get my children, but to see what else was there. And while I was there in January of 2011, I ne I'll never forget it, I really felt this like, what am I doing all this for? And do, have I really found my true purpose in, in what God's called me to? And, I have these abilities, but maybe I'm not applying them in the ways that he wants me to apply them now. And so a couple, you know, two short months later, we, we actually made a change at, with um, Coach Pearl, who uh, is a dear friend, but um, hard, hard place, but the right decision for where we were at the time. You know, I ended up getting death threats and all those kind of oh, things man. that you end up having happening in the SEC. And... Um, and I, I, I can laugh about it now, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I really, I said, you know, this is, it's just time. It's time to move on. When you get to a place, and I think many leaders, particularly leaders who've had success over a period of time, if, if they get to a point where their leadership capacity, leadership ability has been marginalized, so many people stay on too long. Hmm. And our problem is pushing that gap. But I felt like it's time to move on. And Ego, I need to set pride aside and set ego aside and understand that God's called me something new. Now it's, and I've talked to a bunch of my friends in college athletics who today feel those same pressures some days, but they're like, I don't know what I would do. Well, let me tell you, if you've been an athletic director, at a, particularly in an SEC school, you have capacity to do other things. And maybe you don't realize that when you're in the moment, right? So I felt like God was calling us to someplace different. I didn't know where, I didn't know what. 
But um, I went to my chancellor in May of 2011. And, you know, I've got this friend of mine, he always says, well, when you were fired, and I saw something the other day in the commercial appeal, when Mike Hamilton was fired, I wasn't fired. I, I probably would have been fired in, in six months because that we were not going to be as successful in football and I have to be a realist that, you know, there was going to be the next person in line. I was the next person in line. Um, but I just felt like it was time to move on. Then it becomes, what do you do now? And I, at the time, I was fortunate, I became an athletic director at age 39. So when I left UT, I was still in my early, late 40s. And, um, and so it becomes, how, it becomes how do you want to use your gifts? Well, the natural place to land is, well, I want to stay in athletics. I've done this for 26 years. Yeah. And I shared with you, I had an opportunity to go to the University of Oklahoma and work with a dear friend there. And, and long story short, we couldn't get to the finish line. And, and I've had some opportunities with some nonprofits and some for-profits. And, Really, we started thinking about where do we want to live? We've never really had the chance to, to say, where do we really want to live? And that place for us had always been Nashville, but we couldn't figure out how we were going to get here. So we made the decision we were coming to Nashville. And I happened to serve on a couple of organizations at the time, boards, one of whom was needing some consulting. And we moved to Nashville. I started doing consulting, led to them hiring me full-time, Bloodwater, great organization doing work in Africa. And did that for three years until uh, God, you know, raised my eyes to something different in the fall of 14 and led me to, to now working with Show Hope. Mm. Describe your work with Show Hope now. What, I mean, you know, I know you're heading to China tomorrow. Yeah, heading to China tomorrow. So our work is uh, in orphan care and adoption. We do four things in particular. We have six care centers in China where we take um, marginalized children who have many been left in dying rooms and we bring them in for surgeries and care and hopefully put them in a position to be adopted. Or in some cases, it's, pal it's strictly palliative care. We're going to love them, show, show them the love of Christ in the time, short time that they're on, on earth so that they die with a family. Um, and that's a hard thing to talk about, but that's, that's the reality of it. And then we, we provide grants for families who want to adopt. And now we've done that for 5,000 families for adoptions from 53 nations. We have a college um, orphan awareness program called the Red Bus Project. It's a big... London double-decker bus that we take on the campus to it's a roving thrift store but that's the conduit for bringing students into conversation it's not a fundraiser it's to say hey you know what the orphan crisis message is real there's a, another new orphan every 18 seconds who's delivering that message to the most communication savvy generation of all time our college students we want to be that person we want to be that organization <clears throat> we've now done that for over 130 universities just finished a run through the Carolinas over the last couple weeks and then finally, we do pre- and post-adoptive therapy. Adoption is glorious, but adoption's hard. Mm. And so how do you bring families into this story and try to peel away the shame? Because it's natural to go to a place of shame and say, this is my fault. Mm. This is my fault. But adoption stories begin in themselves out of trauma. And so how do we go and work with a family, work with families and say, let's talk about how you can now bring this you deal with attachment issues, deal with trauma issues to, to hopefully derive the most healthy relationship possible with your children. We do that by two ways. One, we send counselors and professionals to Texas Christians Institute of Child Development for professional training. We scholarship those folks. And then we also involve families in a conference every year called Empowered to Connect. We just had it in Nashville a couple weeks ago, mm. broadcast over 450 churches and almost 20,000 people. And that's been a way for families to become involved in the conversation. My work, particularly as executive director, has been about to hone the organization in such a way that we're prepared for the next phase of our work. And then having done a lot of that over the last 16 months now, prepare us to look outward and onward and say, 
what is God calling us to be as an organization? Not necessarily just what we think we're, we're going to be, but what is God calling this organization to be? So that's the purpose of the trip to China tomorrow is to take 12 donors to China to see the work and say, let's vision cast for where the organization can go. Wow. Love it. There's a lot of parallels. I mean, when you think about it, between your role as athletic director to your role now as executive director, uh, what, have, what are some of the universal leadership lessons that you've learned that kind of parallel both of those uh, roles that you've had? Yeah, so, you know, I, don't, I hate to keep beating a, a drum, but, but I just really believe that, that leadership is about bettering people, right? Yeah. And so I look at it from the, through the lens of transforming lives. I think that so many times we're ready to always speak into uh, situations based upon our knowledge. And typically if you're in a leadership role, you've gotten there through some life experience or through time or through attrition or hopefully through performance. Mm-hmm. And so when we arrive at that point, many of us think that we have all the answers. <laughs> and <clears throat> I think one of the greatest le- leadership lessons we can learn is if we're not constantly learning, we're not really being effective leaders because this is an ever-changing, ever-evolving world. And I mean, let's just take the digital space alone, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, my, I, my 16-year-old is the one I go to for some of my answers now, right? And so we have to be prepared for those changes uh, if we're going to be effective leaders. And I think that that um, so often we don't listen well enough in that regard. I like to read um, as one of my growth methodologies because um, it's gleaning a little bit of information a little here, a little bit there. I think we also, if we're going to become effective leaders, we need to observe leadership from out, outside of our um, particular space. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're a, a general contractor. Are you, are you learning something who, from a leader who's at a church? Or if you're a church leader, are you learning something from someone who's in you know, athletics or whatever, mm-hmm. because leadership principles are diverse, but they're also, um, they're across many different perspectives. And it doesn't have to be just to your particular um, industry mm-hmm. that you can learn in. I think it's important to learn your industry, but I think that as we observe qualities from others who lead well, we, we actually grow. That's, um, I think you're exactly right. There's transferable laws of leadership, right? And so, and uh, those carry over. Talk about, you know, you've been very successful, and, and God has blessed you and, and uh, every place that you've been. Um, but what I also see is it hasn't led to pride or arrogance, which it does with many people. Uh, there's a humility about you, and there is a, a, when we talk about vulnerability in leadership, talk about how humility and, and vulnerability have really uh, allowed you to have a greater capacity for leadership. Yeah, well, first of all, I realize it's all God's. Yeah. Mm. And um, any opportunities that I've been given— it's been through his grace alone that I received those. I mean, I, I think back sometimes about standing on the field at Neyland Stadium, you know, getting ready to play the University of Florida or Alabama or name the team with 100,000 people in the stadium. And, and I followed four athletic directors, all of whom are in College Football Hall of Fame. And, you know, I didn't play college, be, I didn't play athletics beyond my high school years. And I think, how did I end up here? Well, that's, how did I? You know, it's God's grace. I did a program one time called Anything is Possible. I'm like, I'm, dude, I'm your, I'm your guy. Anything is possible. So um, I forgot your question, Jeff. Uh, but, but, so humility, I think that we learn from um, when, we, when we truly realize that it's a gift we've been given, mm-hmm. and this is God's calling on our lives, then we have to be humble about that, yeah. right? And um, how do we learn from that? And, and in my particular case, I also had to learn a few hard lessons from failure. I, I admit that at somewhere along the lines, I probably became prideful. You know, everybody, when you're in a position of leadership like I was in at UT, a lot of people want to say good things to you. 
And then the worm can turn pretty quickly, and some people want to say things that aren't as good to you. And you re- begin to realize, that, Who, what's this really about? And my wife is always good about saying, you're really serving one, Mike. Mm. You're serving one. You're serving the Lord, and that's who you're serving. And, and so I think that's where it all starts. That's what it's all about in the end. And so today, when I look at my career and my career path, many times I look at my 26 years in athletics as maybe that was the setup. Maybe that wasn't the end. Maybe that was the setup for now what, what God's called us to do going forward. I get invited to speak a lot of places, and the primary reason I get invited, I know, is because I was director of athletics at the University of Tennessee. But if that allows me to tell some tidbit of information that speaks into somebody's life that says something to them at that particular place, I'll take it every day because I feel like, back to Kalu's name, it's about getting the word out and learning from our experiences. Life is about story. Mm-hmm. It's about story. And we all have a story. And uh, I have a better assessment of what my story is now than I ever have before. I've, I've now seen where I operate out of my story, my childhood, things that mattered and things that were hard or good in my childhood. And, and so looking back and reflecting on that now, I see exactly where and why God, God has me, why, where I am today. I didn't understand that in the process. I can't tell you what this afternoon looks like. I can't tell you what tomorrow looks like. But I rest in the promise that I know that, that God has a plan for my life. And I'll be able to see that in retrospect. And some days it may not be that day looking back. Someday it may be, you know, a year from now or, you know, in heaven someday that we look back and see the purpose in that. But I see clear purpose in God's role in my life as I reflect upon my life at age 53. And maybe that's all, you know, fluffy to a lot of folks. But it's just real. Yeah, it's just real. It's real. It's real. I'll talk about, you know, we all are spiritual leaders, right? Just by the grace that God's given us and to be spiritual leaders in our home and, and then at work. And a lot of times we get those reversed. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about work, but talk about being vulnerable as a leader, even in your home with your wife or with your children. What, what does that look like? Yeah, um, I think it's a willingness to admit that you're, that you're human and that you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, I fail. And my family sees some of the most abject failures in my life. You know, in my life, many days. I we were with our daughter in London over the last few days, as she was over there studying. And you know, I I had one night in particular where I would say that I don't know that I'd call it an anxiety attack, but I really just had this really significant level of stress about um, where where things were. And and I said some things I shouldn't have said to my to my daughter and to my wife. And and it, but I had to go back. I had to step away, and then I had to come back and say, you know, I would you forgive me? Because, you know, those are not the things we're not meant to hurt you personally. They're dealing out of my own crap, mm-hmm. pardon my language. No. And, and so I think that the way that we, my daughter in particular, now that she's 20 and we're having more adult conversations, the thing that she's always said that she admires about our relationship is that, that I say hard to her. So there was a conversation she was having with her mom this, uh, this week. And, and she's kind of a leader type, go-getter type, uh, my daughter. And... And she was, um, I thought she was disrespectful, one of the things that she said to my wife. And so we, were, we went to a, su- we were at a subway stop in the, not subway, the restaurant, subway, the tube. <laughs> and, and I said, Madison, tapped her on the shoulder and I said, Madison, what you said right there to your mom, you say that in the workforce, you're going to get fired. And she said, well, you guys aren't my bosses. And I said, exactly. I'm going to leave that right there and let you think about that for a minute. Mm. And she's like, wow, you know, and came back to me and went, Dad, I'm really sorry, and I really, you know, 
And so it's being, it's being willing to be honest and truthful. We don't tell truth. We don't speak truth enough anymore. Mm-hmm. This country, part of the, way, the reason we are where we are is we're, we're hunkered down and we're, just, we're, we're not speaking truth to each other. Yeah. And truth's hard, right? Mm-hmm. But I think truth changes things. Mm-hmm. And I want somebody to speak truth to me. Yeah. I don't want to hear your BS. <laughs> I wanna, if, you, if you've got an issue with something I'm doing or an issue with something I've said, tell me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I may be mad for a period of time, or you know what? It may be something where the scales fall off my eyes. Mm-hmm. Speak truth. Mm-hmm. Speak truth. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing. As a leader in the workforce, leader in our home, leader in church, speak truth. Yeah. Speak truth. And I think men are scared right now. Amen. I mean, because it's like you, you, you feel like you got to be politically correct, or you know, somebody's going to say something or push back, and yet. God's called us to step into that, and, and we do. We speak truth in love, and you speak truth in grace, but there is that call, and that, you know, some of that comes back to that vulnerability of just saying, God's in control of my life. And well, you have to be willing to release it, too. Yeah. I had a situation at UT at one point where I felt like something borderline was a borderline integrity issue with one of our staff members, and I called our chancellor out one day and said, I need to talk to you, and let's go down the hall. And we went into a dark theater, seeing probably 800 seats in it. We sat on the front row and the theater was dark except for a light up on the stage. And I said, here's this matter that I'm dealing with. And I'm willing to tell you that I, I've got to deal with it in this certain way. And I'm going to make a change in this particular situation. And I feel strongly enough about it that if you're not with me, I want you to fire me. And he's like, whoa, hold on. And I said, that's, you know, I feel like that we've got to stand for something that's right. You know, the popular thing, it's easy to go to the popular thing. Mm-hmm. But how are we going to stand for something that's right? Mm-hmm. In the end, it, it, you know, truth wins. Mm-hmm. It may not win in this world, yeah. but in the end, truth wins. Yeah. And, and so um, I just would challenge men in particular, we're, we're about earning respect. That, that's what I see us. But respect, if you peel it all away from men, what it really means in our child's heart is love. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it really means. But, but we put this facade on about how am I going to get respect, respect in my job, respect in my home. You know, I think where you gain the most respect ultimately, ultimately is when you're, when you're real mm-hmm. and when you're vulnerable and when you're honest and when you speak truth. And does, in the world's eyes, is that sexy? No. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Yeah. I'm at a point now where I don't care. <laughs> That's, that's just how I feel because yeah. in the end, maybe, it's, maybe I have the benefit of being older now, mm-hmm. but I realize that when I say my short time on earth, you know, I hope it's a long time, but relatively speaking, yeah. you know, I'm in the, now getting ready to head to the second phase of my career. I want to live for things that are right. Mm-hmm. You know, do I want to be valued? Do I want to be paid? What's the market rate for what I'm doing? Sure. You know, don't people to think I'm a good dad? Yeah. Don't people think I'm a good husband? Yeah. But the main thing I want to know is when it all goes away and I close the door at night and I look in the mirror, I'm like, God, did I live for you today? And, and I fail on that a lot. A lot. But that's what I'm trying to judge myself against now. And some days I want to get down on my knees and just cry and say, you know, why me, God? Why have I had to go through some of these things I've had to go through? And the, my sin, my sin for so long has been, I want to be loved. I want to be liked. I want to mm-hmm. be validated. Well, you know what? I had that. Mm-hmm. And then I also didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And that hurt. Mm-hmm. It hurts some days. But I found out where my strength really is in that. And I've, you know, the rock, the true north, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's days where I, I rage against that. And I want to beat Jesus on the chest <laughs> and say, why the 
hell is this happening to me? But I see purpose in it in retrospect. So bring it on. Let's go. I know there's going to be hard in my life. We were not promised an easy life, right? Right. It says that in the Bible. Right. And man, have I seen that? Mm-hmm. Have I seen that? And so when I rage, um, typically it's a short-term mm-hmm. rage on those kind of things, and then I come to the realization that there's I'm I'm going I'm being pruned, mm-hmm. and and God's growing me to something else. I don't know what else that is. Yeah. Well, I love that. I, I, you know, in your, in your heart, your passion, your passion for looking in the mirror and saying. Am I doing what God's called me to do? Am I making a difference for his name and for his glory? And, and yeah, it starts at home. It starts with your wife. It starts with your kids. It, but it just goes out. It, you look at every moment to take captive every thought even that comes in your mind and say, I want to live my life for God's glory. You know, I get one shot at this. Yeah. And uh, so what do you want at the end of the day for your legacy to be? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> that, would be, that's my, that would be me saying that would be mm-hmm. saying me again, right? Prideful. But... I, I really, I want, I want my kids to know they were loved well. My mm-hmm. kids are like all kids. They want to be loved well. But in particular, taking my kid's story as another step. My kids were, were um, orphaned. Three of them orphaned formally in the fact that they're, 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 both their parents uh, died. Mm-hmm. And then my older two, that, that they were placed for adoption. I want them to know that God, um, God put them in a place where they were loved well by their father. I want my wife to, to know that, that I've tried to live the best I can for her as a husband and someone who's a, a helpmate and a supporter and a leader in her home, uh, our home, and, and knowing that I fail on that miserably daily, but I'm trying. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying. And then I want the people to know that I, that I work with, that, um, that I'm walking alongside them, not just in front of them as a leader. There are days when I have to be a leader in the sense that I'm the only one that has to make, I have to make the final call. Yes. But I want them to know that we're walking along together in this, and that I value every single person in every sentence, every significant role. And then I believe that there are, are reasons why I've been able to go through the different things that I've been able to go through in my life. And so many lessons learned from that. And I accept these kinds of opportunities today because I feel like God's saying, you need to share. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's somebody at Cool Springs that hears something they didn't know or downtown or here. But, but I, um, I don't know why. Yeah. But I just feel like this is where God's placed me and, say, and that I have to do that. And so if, it's, I, if I can speak truth for one moment to one person out of whoever might ultimately hear or watch this, then I feel like that's part of my thing that God has called me to. Yeah. And so it's, it's leading, uh, living a life in such a way that when I get to heaven, God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh. Man, I love that. I love that. Hey, give us two takeaways, just short takeaways for spiritual leadership and being vulnerable as a leader. Yeah, so the one thing we have the hardest time of uh, doing in America, listen well and give your eyes. I think so many times we're like this now. We know it, right? It's this way in my family. Mm. Everybody's looking down all the time. Mm. There's a value in giving your eyes to someone. Mm. And when you give your eyes to someone, you listen more effectively. And when you listen more effectively, you're able to see in someone's heart in a, a more profound way. And that's where you can affect someone's life. And then the second thing is, in now listening well and seeing your eyes, how am I going to operate with integrity and truth with you? Mm-hmm. And um, those are cornerstones. They're pillars that we must, we must, we must reside with wow. in our, our daily walk and in this country. And I think that if we don't get back to that, we're just, I mean, I'm not trying to be, I just think we're headed to treacherous, more treacherous ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike, this is awesome. We've got a couple of questions for you. 
Thomas, we got some questions that have come in. Yeah, we do. Uh, Mike, you, you hit on some of this. This might be wow. just a little follow-up. Did you ever consider giving up in response to an individual failure or personal crisis? How did you press on? Yeah, so giving up. Um, that could be, you know, couched in a couple different ways, right? And, yeah, so I would say, did I ever consider taking my own life? Probably not to that extent, though, you know, there's this moment where you see a lot of things pass by you. Is, is, um, but, yeah, there are times where I'm like, I want to just, I mentioned raging and beating Jesus on the chest. There are times where I'm like, just take me away, right? Um, and I, I think that the way I got through that after the, uh, the, uh, the emotion of the moment, the, the energy of the moment, the hurt of the moment was to realize after it was all over, I'm still sitting here. <laughs> it's then, okay, now God, what did, I, what did I need to learn from that? What is the takeaway from that? And what do you want me to do with this going forward? And um, man, it hurts. Um, we had a really hard crisis with one of my kids in the fall of 2014. And I was just devastated, devastated. And was like, man, am, am I just a total failure with, with um, my children? And, but, I, but I learned so much through that that now maybe I'm just a little bit better parent from, I wish I could say I was this much better parent from, but it's just taking, um, what's the, the Bible verse talks about, it, a lamp into my feet. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a lamp into your feet, what that means to me typically is you're seeing one step at a time. And so it's having the courage to be able to take the one next step mm-hmm. and knowing that God then will light your feet again to take the next step. So good. Yeah. That's, man, you're right on. You're right on. We got one more? Yeah, let's do one more. Um, we're going to go with this one. What was the hardest decision you ever had to make in leadership? <laughs> Man, you want the litany? Uh, you know, hardest, I, I think you could look at that in different ways. I mean, some people would judge hardest as, um, you know, you're going to probably sit and say, well, it's the most public success or failure of your decision. But there, there are hundreds of decisions in leadership that, the, that no one outside of your very small circle ever sees. Mm. And, um, you know, and they all have implications. And so I don't know, I really couldn't pinpoint one. I mean, obviously when you're making changes of, of um, hiring and firing decisions, those are incredibly difficult, particularly when it's not just the lives of the individuals. Let me, let me talk about Coach Fulmer and that relationship just real quick. You know, so when we had to make the decision in football, that affects him, it affects his family, it affects his daughters, it affects his wife, it affects his mom, it affects you know, nine assistant coaches, all their families, it affects strength and conditioning and training room, and it, it's like turning an aircraft carrier around in the Tennessee River. So yeah, I think that's a hard decision. Now, that decision wasn't made unilaterally, it's made institutionally, but I was the one that had to sit like this and have the, the formal conversation. And so there are a lot of those kinds of decisions, some more public than others, where they were hard. But here's the thing, you can't shy away from hard. Mm. It goes back to the whole truth discussion, yeah. right? And so... Um, it, it, I'm writing a book. Maybe I'll put all this in the book, right? Good. So there are a lot. There were a lot of hard decisions, but the changes that the, the public go to probably more than anything else are the changes that we had to make with high-profile coaches who had had some level of significant success. But everybody's not privy to all the backstory on all that, and, and won't ever be privy to all the backstory on mm-hmm. that. And you have to, as a leader, you have to rest in the fact that sometimes that's just the way it's going to be, and you have to make the decision regardless of that. I love how you said that, that we shouldn't shy away from hard decisions. And I think all the men here, you know, God has called and equipped us um, to be his ambassadors, to be the hands and feet of Christ. It, 
we can't abdicate that responsibility. We can't sit back. We've got to step in, you know, and we've got to love our families well, our wives, our children. We've got to love the people around us well, but we've got to be willing to step in, and sometimes it's hard. Well, and, and when we don't step into the hard, many times that's a temporary solution. Yeah. You know, we're, we do something, and maybe it fixes it for the day, but, you know, eventually the tire blows, yeah. right? And so you, you have to be willing to make the hard decision, even, even at your own personal risk, your own personal uh, career risk or, or whatever sometimes, relational risk. Mm, that's huge. Well, I'm thankful, Mike. This has been fantastic. And, you know, I believe as we grow as men in, in, our, in our walk with the Lord first and then as our leadership, it impacts our family, it impacts children, it impacts our communities, it impacts generations. And so thank you for giving your time. So let me pray for us right now. God, thank you for today. Thank you for Mike. Father, thank you for his life and the way, God, you've used him, not just at the University of Tennessee, but, Father, what you're doing through him now with show hope and, God, just precious orphan children that are finding a home and finding a life. And, and God, you are impacting him in an incredible way, Father. And, God, I pray that we can learn today about what it means, um, Father, to be spiritual leaders. Um, Father, give us a desire to step in and to love well, to serve well. Father, to speak the truth. I love when he talks about give, give people our eyes, God, that we would listen and we would hear. And so use us, God, as spiritual leaders, Father, today and every day of our lives, God, so we can look in that mirror and say, hey, one day I'm going to hear from my Father, well done, my good and faithful servant. God, we love you so much. Thanks for this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Wow, good job. Well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for doing this this morning. We appreciate it. Be on the lookout for your Men's Leadership Network recap email. It'll come out this afternoon. It'll have a, uh, a link to the video for this morning, as well as links to the previous 20 other uh, videos that we've had. It'll also have some helpful, uh, some helpful notes and some takeaways from this morning. Next week, we're going to have the pleasure to have John Felkins with us. He's the Director of Coaching uh, for the Dave Ramsey Organization. We're going to be talking about the importance of passing leadership on. So you don't want to miss that. It'll be next Thursday. We'll start with breakfast at 6.30. We'll get kicked off at 7. Thanks for joining us.